following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Welcome to Flash Gordon Minute, presenting your hosts from Minute of Darkness and the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast, Brad, and introducing your intrepid explorer of Planet Mongo, Eric. It is minute seven of Flash Gordon. Eric, how are you? I'm fine, Brad. I'm feeling very Porkins today. Uh, Porkins. Ah, well, this is another good day because for the our, our second of three uh, appearances from Sean German from Groundhog's Minute. Sean, how are you? Fantastic. How are you gentlemen doing today? Oh, we're great. And let's, let's let the listeners roll right off the bat, because we're going to jump right into it. Sean is on this week because he requested minutes with the character Munson in them, who, of course, is played by... William Hootkins, the Hootman. Woohoo! One of the kings of the supporting actor sci-fi genre. Absolutely. What are, where, where else would ha- our, our listeners have seen Mr. Hootkins? The, the Hoot, if you will. <laughs> oh, I hope somebody calls him the hoot. Uh, the hoot. The hoot. <laughs> yeah, where where haven't you seen him? That's the question. I mean, we're talking about Porkins, Red Six from uh, Star Wars, Major Eaton from Raiders of the Lost Ark, and of course, who can forget Lieutenant Eckhart from Batman? And his 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 line in Raiders when he goes top <laughs> men. I, I've I've loved that line since I was a little kid when I saw that movie. Such a distinctive look, and uh, Credit Given has played some different characters. Uh, his role in Batman, God, you could just when you see him on screen, you can almost just feel the the grease coming off him. He just <laughs> he just looks sticky. Uh, <laughs> then you know, Porkins. God bless. Por- First off, what a terrible name. But <laughs> it, it's it's the worst name in Star Wars. And history. that's saying something. That is, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I mean, he's overweight, and his name is Porkins. <laughs> it, it feels like that was a name that was like just a a, a holdover. It's like ah, uh, yeah. Well, we'll do. Yeah. Well, there's Porkins over there. It's like that's not his name. Right? It's like now nah, we'll figure out something better later. And they just forgot to. What's funny? It, I my, my kids are at an age where, of course, they're like all kids. They're into cartoons, and they love Phineas and Ferb. Uh, has anybody been exposed to Phineas and Ferb? Not yet. One of the probably the only show my kids don't watch. Uh, by the way, y- you will like it once your kids get into it. It's actually a surprisingly well written and well put together show. But they had one episode where they sort of did their own Star Wars parody, and uh, they kept yelling at Porkins. It, it, it took place in sort of like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of Star Wars, where the characters were sort of bouncing around in the background of the movie. They kept yelling at Porkins. He's like, ah, shut up, Porkins. And then at the very end of the movie, I mean, at the end of the episode of Phineas and Ferb, they showed Porkins safely uh, parachuting down to uh, meet the, the main characters. It's like, ah, oh, it's nice. Porkins lived. Because <laughs> C- he deserved a better fate. <laughs> That's only part of what we're talking about. We're not. This isn't Phineas and Ferb Minute. This is Flash Gordon Minute. And uh, Eric, can, can you walk... Our listeners through uh, minute seven of this uh, uh, of this opus. Yeah, before we get to William Hootkins, uh, we're still on the plane. We're still dealing with some turbulence. We mentioned on yesterday's show about Flash's flying lessons, and 
I, I, I thought it was very convenient for the exposition of the plot that Flash is taking those lessons so he can give an actual dictionary definition about what turbulence is. <laughs> and not only that, but he can give it to a travel agent. God bless Sam Jones. Somehow he made this not seem smarmy or condescending. He actually just comes across like, oh, well, let me tell you what turbulence is. And she's hanging on every word. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, I mean, you know, I know that it's a rough ride. I know the plane's going up and down. But even, has she never been on a plane before? I mean, it's it's even if it's the roughest flight she's ever been on, she's really overreacting to the turbulence. Yes, I, I know travel agents, just by the nature of the job, they often have to go on flights or trips or something just... Uh, they are sent by the company because that's your job. So you should know what these, and they'll also like take maiden voyages on certain planes. There's yeah, she, she's traveled quite a bit and, and I'm not much of a flyer and I've been on plenty of flights where there was, you know, less than fun uh, turbulence. So yeah, she shouldn't be such a, uh, such a whiner about this. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I haven't been on, kind of a, a small plane, a, a one this small. Um, I've heard that you, it is a more, it's a rougher ride. You you feel the turbulence more. It's similar to uh, on a boat or ship, just the, the bigger the vehicle is, the more it's going to, you know, its own inertia is going to protect you from jumps and waves and stuff. But still, like you said, um, yeah, it'd be surprising to think in 1980, a travel agent that hadn't flown before and, and kind of wasn't more used to it um, and would, would know it, turbulence was certainly yeah sure and you know it's interesting she's got a real i feel like there's a real callback moment to the origins of flash gordon in the 30s and 40s the real damsel in distress when they look out the window and they see what's going on in the sky as the black clouds <laughs> start to creep in and cover the sun she she runs to flash wraps her arms around him. what's happening flash i mean it's a real old school damsel in distress moment there oh uh, yeah she, she's basically sitting in his lap with his arm i was like and he's actually like the most natural thing yeah. in the world is like uh Maybe. yeah that, that just that that doesn't that doesn't happen oh she was probably the fourth woman that day to wrap her arms around him like that <laughs> <laughs> While she's, you know, kind of saying she's nervous and he's trying to comfort her, he's already holding her hand before that the sky turns dark and, and she jumps on him, but uh, or to him. But yeah, so they get physically close. They're making, you know, they're they're touching very quickly in the relationship, and uh, you know, considering they're they're just getting acquainted or, or they're either just meeting or just getting acquainted and having met before. Um, but yeah, so they're already holding hands and then. Yeah, she's she's wrapped in real close. Um, they they fill the screen. And it's funny you're right. Where the, there's a, like a lot of physical touching, and it's also not he didn't shake her hand or anything like that beforehand. So there's a lot of touching, but it's but it's not even formal. It's definitely very quick. You know, again, it looks like she is on on his lap, and. He doesn't even seem to acknowledge it where – you're right. It's probably the fourth woman today who's done this move. And if if not for the fact that it looks like Dale actually is concerned, part of me would just think he's like, oh, okay. She's just waiting for the first bump so she would have an excuse to jump into Flash's arms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's a little bit – there's a little bit of um, Henry Hill in, uh, in Flash. There's the line in Goodfellas that, you know, everyone wanted to – to, to please Henry and and he knew how to handle it and, and I think that's true of Flash as well. 
Sure. He's 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 been not in this literal situation before, but he's been in this type of situation before, and is just, just like, oh yeah, okay, sure. Now, uh, so, so so she's left in his arm, and what's great is there was a lot of talk yesterday about the the, the way that, how well color is used because everything's been sort of drab, and in this minute. The sky goes red, and the way the red sort of fills up the plane, and uh, you know stuff's getting really serious now. And um, Flash sort of looks concerned, although Flash never looks really, really concerned. Um, I, it, it, and I don't know if it's if that was a director's choice or just the fact that God bless Sam Jones. There's only so much concern he can actually <laughs> accurately portray on film. Are you saying he's the Hayden Christensen oh, of this movie? No, he, he just no. might be. He, <laughs> but but you don't want to punch him in the face, right? Because every time I see Hayden Christensen on screen, it's like, huh, I wonder how come nobody's trying to punch him in the face or set him on fire. <laughs> and by the way, that can work. That can work for Hayden. If, if the right role, there's roles where you want someone that you can, you know, you, you need somebody who everyone wants to just sort of run up to the screen and you know, just try to punch him, even though they know he's not really there. Well, when the scene switches, and Sean, this is your ch- your your chance to shine. You've been waiting for months, and so t- t- why don't you walk us through the, t- the strange living situation uh, and the, the the disturbance of Mister Munson's sleep? Yeah. So this is. So much going on in the final 30 seconds of this minute. We cut to what we find out will be Zarkov's laboratory, which is a ominously phallic-shaped building. <laughs> you know, and we'll, we'll find out later why. There is there is some function to, to the form, but it's very strange coming in, seeing this for the first time. You don't know what's going on. You just see this, this tower. Um, we cut inside – there's a man sleeping and there's fire. These these meteorites, these burning hot rocks falling from the sky. Um, man is who we find out is Munson is awoken by fire, and there's he's on a cot. There's another man on a cot next to him. It's it's so loony. First off, just it, there's so many questions asked. It's like why are they sleeping in this lab? Fully clothed in cots that are about six inches apart from each other. Well, they're they're kind of separated. They're head to head, but there's like I guess it's like a Japanese wall or a, a, a folding wall that's sort of propped up between them. And then there's Munson's got this table, side table next to his cot with looks like just random jars. One is a mug, but then there's a jar and like a vase. But no, there's nothing in it. There isn't like a flower or anything in the jar. Just random glassware strewn about. He's asleep with eyeglasses on a chain around his neck. Backing up and then, so there's there's stone. This is a stone structure, but it, it is it a greenhouse? There's there's flower. There's like plants everywhere. Like it looks like corn stalks. There's these vines or, or stalks growing up behind um, the second man who we learn is is Doctor Zarkov. Like just what is going on in this this laboratory? What weird science is happening? And how did Munson how how did he connect to be Zarkov's assistant? Was he at NASA? I mean, what what is Munson's backstory? You know, was was he an upcoming genius or was he last in his class? You know, I, I, I we get no backstory on Munson. He definitely feels like 
and Igor to uh, Zarkov's uh, Frankenstein, and we'll we'll see that in a little bit more next week because he he seems like a bit of a bumbler. Uh, he's definitely seems um, the character seems to be there just to make Zarkov look a lot smarter and in control because uh, Munson is the one who's just fumbling about he's looks like an unmade bed uh he's like what's going on what's going on and that just seems to be his whole purpose is like wait you know what i think munson might be useless except for to make zarkov look that much cooler and also thinner <laughs> we're, we're going to talk about the fact that i was uh i was very surprised uh, uh by Zarkov, uh, his build, um, he surprised me. I was, my memory of that character and that actor are much different than uh, w- what I see in this next in the next minute. But that's for that's for tomorrow. That's oh, for tomorrow. I, I think you and I might be having the same comment next uh, tomorrow's show, <laughs> and that's foreshadowing, folks. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, so it definitely the Munson's demeanor here, and and what we'll hear from him. Uh, what little we hear from him in the coming minutes kind of lends credence to that. Uh, Zarkov is goes against the orthodoxy, is kind of on the fringes of the scientific community, and doesn't necessarily have his pick of assistance. And so maybe Munson isn't the um, you know wasn't high up on the the food chain and didn't have much much to lose by um, by assisting um, in this environment. I like that. Yeah, he last in his class. Yeah, uh, yeah, last in his class. Yeah, a couple. Uh, I want to talk a bit about um, some of the sound and the music we hear in this yes. minute mm-hmm. uh, because we talked uh, last week how Brad, Sean. I don't know if you were this. Brad and I were surprised to learn as we started researching doing this podcast that not all of the music in this movie was performed by Queen. Yeah, I know. There actually is another composer who who did some music and very little of it made it into the movie. But I think this minute is one of those minutes that has it. Yes, Howard Blake, right? Yes, yes. When first, when the when the clouds are covering the sun, we get this, duh, 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 and I, that seems like that's his music. And then we have this kind of mad scientist horror movie type music plays when we get the exterior of Zarkov's lab that is most definitely not Queen. And um, also, we've got the lightning. Uh, they're showing the lightning coming on, and we've got these great sound effects of lightning. But there's a nice touch, though, that the lightning is, which is uh, uh, the noise that's used in the Flash theme song, though. And so that's a nice touch as well. So we've got some good, some good uh, musical cues in this minute. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, that's uh, my note was very similar. I had a note that it was very like a throwback to the 50s and 60s monster films. Kind of re- yeah, reminiscent of that, which makes sense. So I I taken that note, and then I went back and and researched uh, Blake a little bit, um, and he, he didn't do a lot that I recognized. But uh, one thing in particular, he was the composer for the Avengers uh, television program. So that kind of made sense. We we talked a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, we talked a little bit about that our first week uh, because I liked that show. I liked the old Avengers, and uh, I think that's a property that. It sort of got mangled with the uh, Ray Fiennes, Uma mm-hmm. Thurman, Sean Connery failure. It's a property that I could see still working. But yeah, I watched, I had seen episodes of that show. Those old 50s, 60s, especially the British shows, uh, had great music, very stylized and very cool. And uh, yeah, so eh, glad that, uh, as Eric was saying, his. 
that music, it, listen, you're always going to get overshadowed by Queen. Oh, yes. And especially in Flash Gordon. But uh, they, they had a chance to, uh, but it was nice that they got a chance to have like a cool scene. And the music makes a lot of sense, and especially helps with Zarkov, who we're going to meet um, in the next minute. Because especially at the beginning part of this movie, he's not really a good guy. Uh, he's d- definitely sort of an anti-hero, bit of a jerk, and it, it helps sort of set up and make you feel everything about this minute, the setup between the music and the way that the uh, lab is set up, is supposed to make you feel a little uncomfortable when you first meet Zarkov, and uh, uh, it, it makes sense. Yeah, and there's, and there's a real Ed Wood feel to that establishing shot, too, with not only the old school music, but the lab exterior is fairly obviously a miniature oh yeah <laughs> um, i don't think that they put too much effort into trying to make it look completely real see little little old school uh, effects special effects set design as well when i look at the the lab the the interior of the lab it just feels to me like they sent somebody to the prop department <laughs> it's like grab everything yeah. sciencey and throw it in there <laughs> yes and, and i love that i love that i love that sort of it doesn't really have to make uh, any real rhyme or reason. It's just, hey, it make it look sciency because this is the sort of movie it is. It's like, yeah, yeah, that works. Yeah, it's just it's a movie where you could look and you wouldn't be surprised you saw a telescope and a magnify uh, a telescope and a microscope right next to each other looking at the same thing because I don't know, it looks <laughs> like science. Yeah, it's something. It's it's you could say it's it's in the eye of the beholder. Someone could could look at it and say, well it's just not well done. You know, it's just sloppy work. Uh, but I would take the tack and say, well, you know, it all works towards the function of the film that it, um, you know, it harkens back to that. This is a comic strip that goes back many decades to the, the early 20th century. And so they are reaching back uh, a little bit for the, the sci-fi aspects of the film in terms of, you know, what kind of, what's the lifestyle of, you know, the mad scientist and what does his lab look like and, and so forth. So I, I think it all works. It's, it, it's all, it, as you said last minute, it's insane, but it's the good kind of insane. Yeah. I, I don't need gritty realism in all my movies and this, you know, a little Ed Wood goes a long way and they certainly have a little Ed Wood in this film and, and it makes it fun. It, it shouldn't be. And it's ridiculous to say, the Star Wars is realistic, but this isn't trying to be Star Wars, which was sort of a, at different times were sort of samurai adventure war movies that just so happened to take place in space, but they were trying to go with them to not be zany. And they would have their jokes and their crazier characters, but this is all zany and all surreal. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, we all watch movies to escape, right? You want two hours where you can just escape. This movie, uh, you know, this is a two hour escape. I want to close the loop on William Hootkins. I have some William Hootkins facts that I want to make sure everyone's aware of. Yeah, let's hear about the hoot. Yeah, so when he died in 2005, sadly, he was working on a screenplay about the life of Fatty Arbuckle. Oh. So he was going to continue his tradition of playing overweight people. Hmm. Here's the really crazy I mean, that, that's, that's, that's so minor. I save this for last. At age 15, William Hootkins found himself caught up in the FBI's investigation into JFK's assassination, of all things. His Russian teacher, whose name was Ruth Payne, harbored Marina Oswald, who was Lee Harvey Oswald's Russian wife. 
I knew so it. Porkins was part <laughs> of the JFK investigation. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's a deep cut. Fantastic. Gosh, it's a mystery wrapped in an enigma wrapped in Porkins. It's, I, I'm intrigued by him, do, him doing a Fatty Arbuckle movie. Uh, first off, I, I, I'm, actually, I'm actually fascinated by Arbuckle. Uh, I read a great historical novel based on him called I Fatty. <laughs> he he was sort of an early trial of the century. He was uh, known for oh yeah his uh, film shorts, uh, the Keystone Cops. He was sort of the the ma- the lead guy in those, uh, and he was arrested for uh, raping and killing a young woman. And I think there was two or possibly three trials. They kept uh, having mistrials because he was so famous. Had a profound uh, heroin addiction that eventually took his life, and he was blacklisted after. Despite the fact that he got a not guilty verdict, he was blacklisted and had to work. He ended up directing some short films under a, a, a stage name because he couldn't get any work as Farty, fat, yeah, Farty Arbuckle. Fatty Arbuckle. It's all right. The, the shows, we're keeping our podcast PG-13, Brad. We, we can use that word. That's all right. That's all right. I, I, I'd be interested in it. I, I don't know if, uh, God love him, I, I, I don't know if William Hootkins would it be a big enough name to get that movie to happen. Yeah, I don't know that he had the gravitas to have gotten it done, but it would have been great to uh, to have seen. No, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I I would have I would have gone to see it. Ah, there's just some there's just something great about a guy named Hookins. I'm looking at a picture of William Hookins right now. He looks like a William Hookins. He does. He looks what you think William Hookins would look like. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> and the great and the best thing is uh, we've been joking around calling him the Hoot. I'm actually looking at his uh, Wikipedia page and it says. William Michael, quote, Hoot, end quote, Hootkins. They call him the Hoot. Did you just edit that in? You just updated it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where's the sourcing for that? No, no, no. I always give the people the nickname Boom Boom. A little known fact, a, fr- a co-worker of mine once pulled out, the nickname Boom Boom goes with any name. <laughs> so, Sean Boom Boom German, we really appreciate you with us uh, being this week. You're going to finish the hat trick and uh, rejoin us tomorrow, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, no question. Toss out your uh, Twitter or where people can find out more about Groundhog Minute. Yeah, sure. If you want to hear me uh, to talk about the same thing over and over and over again, you can find me at uh, Groundhog Minute, the Groundhog Day podcast. And that's at uh, GroundhogMinute.com. We also have a listeners group, the Gobbler's Knob on Facebook. You can find us there. Very cool. I recommend everyone check it out. Uh, Sean, you've been fantastic. Really looking forward uh, to finishing it out tomorrow. Uh, now, as for Eric Boom Boom Deutsch, see, it works with every name. It's a great nickname. What else have you – anything last minute you got to share with our, our listeners? I want to plug specifically because Sean is on this week. I want to plug our Flash Gordon Minute listeners Vortex on Facebook because Sean actually suggested the name for our Facebook group. Oh, that's right. That's right. It's a good name. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to keep posting fun stuff and more information about, uh, you know, our guests. Uh, Sean is the first, but not the last. Uh, it's been really great. People are excited to join us on this uh, on this journey. So um, I, I couldn't be happier and just great guests. Sean um, Jarf, um, the co-founder of the Cosmic Meta podcast, is going to be on later. Uh, we're hoping to get some really cool people from the world of Flash Gordon to join us. And of course, we're a minute by minute podcast, so don't worry, don't worry, folks. Crystal Beth will be here. <laughs> you actually aren't even allowed to post this on the face uh, on onto the internet. 
uh, minute by minute until you have an agreement to have Crystal Beth on the show. Really looking forward to her take on this movie. Oh, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Uh, I don't know, Eric. I, I think we're all set. Uh, I, but I, I do uh, I do have a problem. I've been, The last uh, couple of days, I have been uh, a, a co-worker brought in some homemade honey sipping whiskey that I, I've been dipping my beak into for the last few days. And I am uh, I'm running out. So pretty soon I'm going to start doing this podcast over. That, that's a problem. When you're short on moonshine... Don't worry, Flash shall save you, just like he'll save every one of us. Attention listeners, you can follow us on Twitter at FlashGordonPod and join the conversation on Facebook in the Flash Gordon Minute Listener's Vortex. Stay tuned for our next thrilling episode of Flash Gordon Minute.